you want to be complete in Christ, you need these. Now, if the Judaizer had a slogan or a rallying cry, here are a few possible examples. Long live the law keepers. They might have chanted that as they went about their teaching. Or, the only good Gentile is a circumcised one. Or, maybe there's no such thing as free grace. Or, Jews are just a cut above the rest. A couple of you got that one. The rest of you will get that later on today as you sit reading your Bibles. Or how about this one? Jesus plus the law is all you need. Jesus is good, but you've got to have the law. Well, these Judaizers were teaching an anti-gospel and their teaching was no small thing. Their teaching was in opposition to Paul, who has explained over and over again in this letter that salvation comes only through repentance of sin and faith in Christ. Paul has said that saving grace comes through Jesus' work and dying on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. And these false teachers were essentially telling the Galatian church to depart from Christ. Because as we've seen, to add anything to Christ to leave Christ altogether. This letter is Paul's defense of the gospel of grace. And today, Paul will shift his argument in another direction. He's going to tell us that a Christian is not one who relies on the law for salvation, but one whose life has been transformed by the Spirit of God. And he'll show us three things about the Christian life. So if you're taking notes, let me give you the outline right up front here. Three things. First, He'll show us that there is a fight. There's a fight. There's a a battle. There's a war going on in our hearts. Second, he'll give us a picture of a flesh-filled life. A flesh-filled life. And then third, he'll give us a picture of a spirit-filled life. A spirit-filled life. So, let's take the first. That there's a fight going on. As Stuart read the text, you may have noticed five times in our passage, Paul says that a Christian means they're one who are influenced and transformed by the work of the Holy Spirit. That's what a Christian is. You saw in verse 16, a Christian walks by the Spirit. Verse 18, he is led by the Spirit. Verse 22, he tells us the fruit of the Spirit in a Christian life. He gives us that list. Verse 25, we are to live by the Spirit, and then we're also to keep in step with the Spirit. Life is not a reliance on the law for salvation, but a reliance on the Spirit for all things. Salvation, transformation. When talking about the Holy Spirit, often churches think about the Spirit in an uneven kind of way. Some churches make the Holy Spirit the king of the church. Maybe you've been in churches like that where the Holy Spirit is is everywhere, is everything. Holy Spirit is magnified every part of the service, every ministry, it's all about the Spirit. And they elevate the Spirit above all other things. Then you have other churches that just want to hide the Spirit. <laughs> kind of want to put it in a box or kind of, kind of close the door. And it becomes the forgotten or lost member of the Trinity. Now we believe what the Bible says, that the Holy Spirit is real. But who is he? He's the third member of the Trinity. When we talk about the Spirit, we're talking about God. The true God is one God who exists eternally as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's unity and diversity in the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. 
Yet there's one God, all distinct and all eternally God, one God. And each person has distinct roles in salvation. The Father in electing and choosing, and the Son, he lays down his life for salvation. And then the Spirit, the Spirit enlivens and transforms and grants life to dead souls. The Holy Spirit saves us. He's calling us. He regenerates us. He causes us to be born again. He drops the scales from our eyes and allows us to see God clearly. If you're a Christian, friend, God the Holy Spirit has done this to you. He's done this in your heart. But he also sanctifies us. The Spirit causes us to grow in holiness. He does this by indwelling us. When you become a believer, the Bible says the Holy Spirit actually indwells within you. Paul says in Romans, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And the Spirit, the seal of our salvation, gives us a mark and a promise, a down payment, meaning that we are secure in Christ and that he will never, ever, ever let us go. The Holy Spirit also gives us unparalleled privileges, including access in prayer to God the Father. I've often heard the argument that you can't pray directly to the Heavenly Father. You can't pray to him. You must pray to a saint or to the Virgin Mary. And then that person, that person will take your prayer to God the Father. You need an intermediary. There's some religions that make that case. Jesus is great. God is great. But in fact, God is so glorious that you can't go right to him. So you go to an intermediary. They'll carry it to God. Now, it makes sense because you wouldn't just walk right up to the president or king of your country, would you? Well, that'd be true unless, unless you were the son or daughter of the president or king. And you could walk right up to them, make yourself at home because you are at home. Friends, through the death of Jesus and the sealing and indwelling work of the Holy Spirit in your heart, we are sons and daughters of the living God and we have direct access to God. We have the ear of God as one of his children and we are told in scripture in Romans that the Holy Spirit not only gives us access to God, but but actually tells us how to pray, actually intercedes for us, gives us the words to pray. Well, the Bible also says the Spirit gives us gifts to bless the body of Christ. Some people serve, others have gifts of mercy or teaching. And the Holy Spirit is God, part of the Trinity, and saves and sanctifies Christians. But here's the reality Paul is getting at in our chapter Though the Spirit indwells us as believers, there's a battle raging on. Look at the first two verses of our passage. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. And the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other. To keep you from doing the things you want to do. So friends, you see in the text there is a battle going on. There is major opposition going on in your heart. The spirit within us that indwells us, God himself, has an opponent called the flesh. And the flesh is against the spirit. Spirit is against the flesh. And the word, word flesh here, it doesn't refer to our physical nature, our literal body. I'm not talking about your, your skin or your organs but to the sin-desiring aspect of our entire being as opposed to the holiness-desiring aspect. Our hearts have a need to be sanctified by the Holy Spirit. 
need to know that the Christian life isn't all daffodils and long walks on the beach at sunset. Which doesn't characterize our entire relationship with God. But Paul is saying there is a great battle being waged in all of our hearts. This is war because desires for evil still afflict us and tempt us. We don't just say, okay, I'm going to let go and let God. Well, friend, if you just let go and let God in this battle, you will die. Not any one of us can think that we can survive if we just, just let go. Now, Romans 7 talks about this. Paul writes, Paul, the apostle, remember this is the apostle, he's seen Jesus, he's a church planter, he's going around the world planting churches, preaching the gospel, even at the threat of death. He says these words, for I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. If you read Romans 7, you see statement after statement that Paul himself, between the spirit and the flesh, there's a battle going on in his own heart. Oh, friends, there's a civil war going on in every believer's heart, a deadly feud. The spirit and the flesh, they're pulling us in opposite directions. And Paul says, I know what I should do. I know what I'd like to do. I know what's right to do. But there are times when I just don't do it. And so for the Christian, there's a struggle with sin. There's a battle. And there are two ways we can go from here. Two ways we can go in this fight. The first direction we could go is to live a flesh-filled life. That's the second point, if you're taking notes this morning. Second thing Paul's going to show us is what a flesh-filled life looks like. Look at verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Let's stop for a minute. Before we even see the works of the flesh, the first thing we see about them is that they're plain. They're rather obvious. The flesh is secret and invisible, but its works, its deeds, erupt into the public sphere. There's no way to hide these deeds. Nothing you can do to suppress them and hide their fruit. And Paul gives us a long list of these deeds that make evident the work of the flesh. And what's interesting about this list is it's quite long. And there's no real pause. There's no real space between each thing. Now, Grammatically, when there's an and, the word and, in between various terms, the author wants us to pause at each term. They all stand on their own. It's a grammatical device to make you slow down. But when the author just writes each word with no connecting word, no if and, no but, there's a real strong correlation in between the words. Now when there's an and, it's like the author is shooting a rifle, kind of one bullet at a time one shot and then he reloads and shoots again and each bullet on its own is to make a real single strong impact but you see what paul's doing in the list that Stuart read earlier these works of the flesh it's more like he's shooting with a machine gun just spraying out bullets everywhere just one right after another And the effect is different than if we were hit one bullet at a time. He's saying, this is what your life looks like. If you live in the flesh, if you give into this battle in the flesh, here's what your life's going to look like. Verse 19, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. 
It's just a machine gun. It's spraying us down, emptying its magazine of bullets, one right after another. And what Paul's doing here is he wants us to, to feel the ghastly horror and sobering gravity of what the flesh produces. It is evil. And then ever so cleverly, Paul writes at the end, and things like these. This isn't even a comprehensive list. There's more. There's other things like these. This is a representative list, probably giving us some key categories to hang some hooks on and consider. He talks about at least four realms. Sex, religion, society, self-control. First, he mentions sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality. These umbrella categories seem to refer to sexual sins of any kind. Then he talks about pagan religion, idolatry, sorcery. It's about a failure to honor and worship the true God, to delve into magic, demonic activity. Then he spends half of his time talking about society. These are clearly emphasized in Paul's list. They point to a breakdown of personal relationships that disrupt community life. And then the last couple are about giving up control, drunkenness, orgies. I once heard someone say, don't go party and drink too much tequila. Why? Because you'll see double and feel single. (laughs) It means drinking too much alcohol is going to affect your morality, isn't it? Your sight, your judgment just falls to the ground. You can't control yourself. Instead, this drink, this alcohol controls your very being. And what Paul's telling us about these four categories, about this list, is that wicked deeds manifest themselves from within your flesh. That means these sins come from inside of us. And yet we're often tempted to think that our greatest difficulty exists outside of us and not inside of us. We start blaming our environment. Maybe we blame our childhood. You say, the pressure at work made me do it. Or my spouse just irritated me And so I erupted in anger. I really can't help myself given these circumstances and all these awful sinners always around me aggravating me. It's their fault. Now Paul's telling us that our biggest problem is a hard problem. It's amazing that the Judaizers cared so much about the law, but they missed what needed to be cleansed the most. It wasn't the pots or pans. It was their own heart. You can't fix it by behavior modification. It doesn't work. I love how biblical counselor David Powelson talk, talks about this. Now, I used this illustration about three years ago. I take it most of you or many of you are new uh, to a said Redeemer, so I'll, I'll, I'll do it again. It's been really helpful for my own heart. And uh, in this illustration, David holds up uh, a water bottle, just like this. Maybe not just like this, maybe no Arabic in the front, but similar to this. Holds up a water bottle. Now, as you see me up here, what happens when I push the water bottle or tilt the water bottle over or squeeze the water bottle? What happens? Good, we have a lot of Einsteins in the group. Water falls to the ground. It spills. That's what happens. Water on the floor. Now, picture these things that could be done to you. All kinds of situations you deal with. Maybe you're treated poorly and you're sinned against. Maybe your spouse irritates you. Sorry, David, we'll watch your feet there. 
We'll go, we'll go this way to Jeriel here. <laughs> Maybe your boss is mean to you. Maybe you lack sleep and you're just kind of grumpy. Here's the big question. Why is there water on the floor? See, our culture tells us that there's water on the floor because you shook the bottle. Because you put pressure on the bottle because you squeezed the bottle. But the Bible's answer is different. The Bible's answer is that there's water on the floor because there's water in the bottle. If there's gasoline in the bottle, there would be gasoline on the floor. The situation doesn't create the water. In the same way that your circumstances don't create what's in your heart. Your circumstances are just the stage on which the heart's condition is revealed. Does that make sense? The circumstances just bring out what's already going on in your heart. Our culture says, well, I exploded in anger because of my genetics. My mom was an angry person, so I just kind of got her genes, her side of the gene pool. Or my circumstances are so difficult, I had no choice. Dubai is tough. The Bible says you sinned because those are deeds of your flesh. They're the work of your flesh and they're evident to everyone. So the finger should never be pointed at our circumstances or another person, but at ourselves. Now until I went through my nerve disease in my arms, I didn't realize I was an impatient person. I didn't realize that I had an anger problem. Never occurred to me. I didn't realize it until I was pressed a bit. Until I was pressed in discouraging and difficult circumstances that I find out the darkness of my own flesh and my own sin. For the longest time, I blamed my anger problem on my pain. Or I blamed my impatience on my wife. She wasn't serving me good enough. It was her fault if she would just get with the program and serve me better, I would be happy. Now, Augustine, St. Augustine used, used to pray a great prayer. He said, Lord, deliver me from that evil man, myself. It's true. There's a fight going on in your heart, and Paul gives us a warning to show us just how serious we need to take the fight. Did you catch that strong warning at the end in verse 21? I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Oh friend, if we didn't take Paul seriously before, he's got our attention now, doesn't he? This war, this battle, this fight is a matter of life and death. What's important to know is that the tense of the phrase, those who do such things, implies a continuous action. Refers to habitual practice, not an isolated lapse. This doesn't mean if you sin once, you're done and condemned forever. You don't need to be shaking right now if you remember some sin from that list from back in 2004. But at the same time, this should awaken the fear of God in our hearts if we continue in that sin, in that same sin that we struggle with in 2004. Well, this, text, this text means that you will not enter the kingdom of God if your life is characterized by such unrepentant sin. Such consistent practice of these things gives evidence that someone is not in Christ. If you regularly practice these things in unrepentance, this verse gives you no assurance that you're saved. Even if you think you're a Christian or grew up in a Christian church or are here today, there is no confidence you get if you're consistently in unrepentant sin. 
in the way that I just read. So friend, how are you doing with this list today? Those vices, those deeds of the flesh. Do you entertain some secret sin on this list that no one knows about? Do you come in here week after week singing praises to God, but every week you're engulfed in that same old sin? Does that double-mindedness mark your life? Church, home, community group, work. If so, how do you go from works of the flesh to works of the Spirit? I'd say this is one of the key issues in all of Scripture. If you're sitting here, though, and you're thinking, oh, Pastor Dave, when are we going to get to the words that describe my life, those fruits of the Spirit? If that's you, if you don't see yourself in these words, you might be self-deceived. John Owen once said, when sin is least felt, it is most powerful. He goes on to say, only the man who understands the evil of his own heart How vile it is, is the only useful and fruitful person. Maybe you can see your sin, but maybe your natural tendency is a lot like mine. I try to do things. I get serious about going from point A to point B, and so I work out a plan. I think to myself, I'll be really disciplined. I've failed a hundred times before, but I promise God this time it's going to be different. This is the New Year's resolution, isn't it? We've all done it. We've all made this vow, at least to ourselves, maybe to God. I promise things will change. I will change these deeds of the flesh. They will be no more. This year will be the year. But friends, it's never the year, is it? Another year passes and the same problems persist. And you make the promises again. Maybe we work on another plan. Maybe some of you are on a plan right now. You turn to some counselor or pastor or teacher or author. You turn to some television program, some diet, some reading plan, some friend. And you make a program together. You have a methodology. You think you've figured everything out. You can do this holiness thing. No need for God's enabling power. If you just set enough alarm clocks and get up at this specific time for your devotional, then God will have to accept your sacrifice. Or if you just push yourself to give this much to the church, then God is going to have to bless you. Doesn't this sound awfully familiar? Surprise. This is the problem in Galatia. We're no different than those false teachers. They're arguing about what a Christian looks like. And some say, well, the Jews are immoral people and who followed God, and so let's follow the Old Testament law. Let's get circumcised. Let's do the feasts and festivals and practice the Sabbath. Let's obey the dietary laws, and let's act like the Jews because that's what's going to earn God's favor. But what happens to you when you try to clean up your own life and obey a set of rules that you make up? One thing that might happen is nothing. Our flesh is weak, we fail under pressure, and we're broken, sad, depressed. We feel shame that when we fall into sin again, we just get on the crazy cycle and we hit the repeat button and do the same thing over and over and over again. Or another thing that might happen is self-improvement. You've managed to discipline yourself into looking like you want on the outside. 
you've managed to discipline yourself and people see change. They see a good and noble person. But on the inside, you're self-righteous congratulating yourself for your own seemingly holy lifestyle. Well, brothers and sisters, if we're honest with ourselves, then we must all echo Paul's cries. Oh, holy God, I delight in you. I love your law and I long to do your will. I want to obey you because you delight in holiness. But Lord, I can't do what I want to do. Instead, I do what I hate. Oh, friend, what hope do we have then? If we can't fix ourselves, what hope do we have? Well, that's where Paul goes next in our chapter. We see that we need the Spirit of God. That's the third point in our passage, a picture of the Spirit-filled life. Here is our hope, friends. Our only hope. Look at verses 22 through 26. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Again, there's this machine gun firing away these various characteristics. This time it's regarding the fruit of the Spirit. Paul gives us nine in rapid succession. Now there's no agreed upon division here in these verses John Stott divided them in three categories. He said, love, joy, and peace are Godward. Patience, kindness, and goodness are directed manward between people. And faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control are directed selfward. Now, if the first three are Godward, you could say that love is opening yourself to someone for the intrinsic value of who they are. You love them for who they are, not what they can do for you. Joy. Joy is... Delight in God for who he is and not your ever-changing circumstances. Peace. Peace comes from trusting that God knows how your life ought to go and resisting the arrogance of anxiety that says you know better than God. Well, if the next three are manward directed, you could say that patience is being quick to forgive, not easily angered or irritated by other people. Kindness is showing generosity towards others as opposed to envy. You delight in other people doing well. Goodness means sincerity or integrity as opposed to hypocrisy. Well, then if the last three are self-word directed, you could say that faithfulness means dependability, being wholeheartedly reliable. Then you have gentleness. It's the same idea as humility. It's not thinking less of yourselves. It's thinking of yourself less, not being consumed with yourself. And then lastly, self-control. This is the ability to always choose the important thing over the urgent thing and the right thing over the sinful thing. Now here's the interesting thing about this list. We've seen the works of the flesh, but now we see the fruit of the Spirit. It's interesting that Paul uses the word fruit. Now here's a grammatical question for you today, church. Is fruit, is the word fruit singular or plural? Now, this is what the computer age has done to all of us. We are terrible at grammar. We have grammar check on our computers and we type, hoping that little blue line or red line shows up underneath a word to tell us that we've made a mistake. We type into our smartphones using our thumbs. Our jumbled words are often autocorrected for better and sometimes for worse. 
No, the grammar of the word fruit in this case is actually singular. The fruit of the Spirit, not the fruits, plural, of the Spirit. Now, this is important because if it was plural, then you could say, well, I'm pretty good at this one fruit. I'm struggling with this other fruit. I'm doing really, really well here. I kind of gave up on that other one. Not really trying with patience, but I got the joy thing down. Kind of pick and choose your, your fruit. The point is that all of these fruit are interconnected. They all go together. Of these fruit, Tim Keller has said, these are all connected because actually this is one diamond being held up. We turn it around and each one of these wonderful character qualities is just one way of looking into the whole thing. You really can't have one without the other. Think about it. You can't be loving towards someone and at the same time be impatient with them. You can't be unkind and gentle simultaneously. You can't have joy, but be wrecked with anxiety, finding no peace. No, they all go together. What he's saying is that we need to pursue all of them. We fight the deeds of the flesh. Saw that long list and other things like these. We see the fruit of the Spirit, these nine things we must pursue. So friend, where is our hope? Sounds even worse than before I got to point three. It sounds like we're in an even more difficult situation now that we see both sides. Well, if you walk away with truth ringing in your heart this morning, I want you to hear it loud and clear. This is your first time with us. I pray that this will rattle your mind and change your heart. Friend, I want you to know today that our only hope is Christ. That Jesus is our only hope. Look at verse 24. What does verse 24 mean when it says those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires? I think this points back to the idea we saw in Galatians chapter 2 verse 20 where believers are said to be crucified with Christ. Crucifixion was a gruesome death. It was decisive and certain. The criminals were left They are hanging to die. Soldiers were placed at the scene to guard the victims until they were dead. Brothers and sisters in Christ, this is what happened to you at conversion. We crucified everything we knew to be wrong. We nailed our old self-centered nature with all but sinful passions and desires and nailed it to the cross. As the crucifixion was decisive, our repentance from sin was decisive. Maybe you're new to us and you haven't thought about these things. Well, ask yourself this. Have I come to a place where I've repented of my sin and trusted in Jesus to save me? Have I turned away from myself, away from trusting in the deeds of my flesh, and have I trusted in Christ? Have you come to a place where you've recognized that you've sinned against the holy God of the universe through your sexual immorality, your impurity, sensuality, Idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife. Have you recognized that your heart is filled with jealousy, fits of anger, and rivalries? And that you have a heart problem, that sin reigns in your heart? Do you know that you have caused dissensions, divisions, that you are envious of others? 
In fact, the Bible says this is the story of every one of us. We were created to be in fellowship with our maker and creator, and each one of us has turned away from God and looked to ourselves to be our functional savior. Not only are we without hope, but Romans 8 says, without the spirit of life in us, we are completely and utterly dead because of our sin. Because God is holy and we are utterly and forever separated from him. But thanks be to God, Jesus Christ left heaven, became a man, walked with the Spirit, was led by the Spirit, lived in step with the Spirit perfectly all the days of his life and offered himself as the perfect sacrifice for our sins. He walked his cross up to the mountain, died in our place, crucified so that through faith in him we could be saved. We could trust this because we know that on the third day, even though there were guards in front of that tomb, that he couldn't be stopped, that he was risen from the dead, that he was dead, but he came back to life. Friend, the only way you can go from deeds of the flesh to the fruit of the Spirit is if you become a follower of Christ and the Holy Spirit comes inside you to give you a new heart that is in love with the things God loves. That's why Paul can say in verse 18, if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law, meaning... You don't have to be perfect to be saved, but you have to have Jesus to be saved. And he will give you the Holy Spirit of God. Without the Holy Spirit, you will will not grow in holiness. That's the key. You must belong to Christ. That's the only way. Oh, friend, won't you come to him? Even today, even now, won't you turn from yourself and look to God? The great preacher George Whitfield once preached a sermon entitled, You Must Be Born Again. That was the title of the sermon. And after the sermon, a lady came up to him and said, Pastor, why do you keep saying you must be born again? To that he said, because you must be born again. It's because you must be born again. That's why I keep holding out to you. That's what Whitfield said. And that's what I say to you today. Because to be saved, you must be born again. To do the works of the Spirit, you must be born again. It's our only hope to escape death. It's our only hope to be with Jesus forever in heaven. And it's our only hope to fight sin. Well, you might say, well, pastor, I've come to Christ. I've already done this. I've been a Christian for 10 years. I've been a Christian for 20 years. I've been a Christian for 30 years. And yet I haven't seen much victory in this battle of the flesh. Where's my hope? Well, let me encourage you and challenge you with four things. First, Christian growth is gradual. It's gradual. It's interesting that Paul uses the metaphor of fruit. He uses uses it deliberately invoking a metaphor of botanic growth. Christian change is as gradual as a flower growing out of the ground or a pear growing on a tree. Or say you buy a tree and plant it and you say to your wife, we're going to put a swing in this tree one day and we're going to swing in it together. 5, 10, 15, 20 years go by and 20 years later that tree is ready for a swing. But unless you did time-lapse photography, you wouldn't see it grow. But over the years, you were kind to it. You water it. You cultivate it. It's not about seeing the growth. It's about time. It's about habit. Sanctification, growth, and holiness is a process. And the spiritual life is like that. You won't actually see the growth, and yet it'll look, if you look at it carefully, you'll see yourself grow. You realize that you're a bit more patient and joyful than you were last year. But growth is often slow. You won't see it overnight. Sometimes there are seasons of fast growth, and other times there are seasons of very slow growth. Friend, don't be discouraged if you don't see extreme growth. 
Keep going. Press on. Walk with the Spirit. Well, second, Christian growth is powerful. It's powerful. G. Campbell Morgan, a former pastor in the early 1900s of Westminster Chapel in England, once talked about a trip that he took to Italy. He went to a graveyard, saw a big concrete slab, a big, huge tomb. This tomb was over a man's grave. What had happened 600 years prior is that a little acorn, little tiny acorn, had gotten caught in the grave. And out of that acorn came a shoot. Out of that shoot came a tree. Out of the acorn had come a tree that had grown so big and so tall that it split that big slab right in half. Now common sense will tell you, here's a tiny little acorn, and here's a big concrete slab. Who will win? They go to battle with each other. Who will be victorious? Well, it looks like the concrete would win, but actually, actually it's no contest. The acorn with its steady growth will win every time. Oh, friend, imagine what kind of power the Spirit of God has. Paul speaks of this in Ephesians chapter 1. He prays for them in an opening prayer that that the Ephesian Christians would know the power of God at work in them. And listen to what he says about power. That same power, and this is incredible, that same power that rose Jesus from the dead is at work in you. This is too wonderful to comprehend. This is what the Spirit could be doing inside of each and every one of us. That's why Paul's praying that in Ephesians. He's praying that they would know that power, that they would experience it. It's available for the Christian, and he wants them to experience that same kind of power. You are changed from the inside out through the work of the Holy Spirit. That's the key. You have the power inside of you, from outside of you, to change what you could never do on your own. Christian growth is powerful. Christian, the power that raised Jesus from the dead, that broke the bonds of death, is in you. Be encouraged. Well, thirdly, Christian growth is internal. It's internal. Fruit grows by being rooted to a power source. It has to have a foundation. The Spirit is not a leader like the safety car in a Formula One race. We don't follow in our own strength. Instead, we are led by His power. It means we stay hooked up to the Spirit, the divine source of power, and go wherever He leads. It's more like a train. We hook up to the locomotive and he carries us. It's interesting that Paul mixes metaphors. That earlier he talked about works and not fruit. I once heard someone say, why didn't he say weeds of the flesh and fruit of the spirit? Why does he he say works and fruit? Well, perhaps because works of the flesh are something you do, but the fruit of the spirit is only something that you can open yourself up to, like a gardener. A gardener doesn't make the plants grow, He just creates the conditions through which the power of the seed is released. You can't force yourself to be more loving and kind, but you can look to Jesus. You can put yourself in a position for God to move in your life. This is why we do spiritual disciplines. We don't practice spiritual disciplines to be legalistic. As if here's the ten laws to a spiritual life. Do these things and you'll be holy. No, we don't do it in terms of legalism. But a spiritual discipline is a place you put yourself in a position for God to work on your heart. That's what a spiritual discipline is. This is why we meditate on the riches of Scripture. That we need to see and savor Jesus so that he gives us new affections, stronger ones. That's why we memorize Scripture. There's a great article towards the back of your bulletin this week about how to memorize large portions of Scripture. This is a great discipline because it allows you to carry the Word of God in your heart throughout the week. It'll stick with you and in various circumstances you can Preach to yourself, remind yourself of Scripture. That's why we spend time in communion with God through prayer. 
Because in that prayer time, God changes our heart and conforms our will to his. That's why we sit with a friend and read scripture to one another. Because God uses other people to speak biblical truth to us. And that's why we're active in the church and serve others. It's one of the reasons we're having the special two-week class here on serving at Redeemer. It's because it's often while we're serving others that God works in our hearts as well. Well, fourthly and lastly, Christian growth is ongoing. It's ongoing. This isn't something that happens to you and then you're finished. There's no perfection in this life. We're all a work in progress. It's an ongoing life process until the Lord calls us home or Jesus comes back. Jesus Christ is preeminent. He is essential to everything in this world and he is utterly holy. This is why Paul urges us to keep in step with the Holy Spirit. How do you keep in step with the Spirit? Well, you walk with the Spirit, meaning you have an active relationship with God. You follow the lead of the Spirit. You live in the Spirit. We begin to see people. We, we are people who see everything in the world through the lenses of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And by God's grace, you keep on fighting sin. But you don't do everything at once. When you looked at the earlier list of works of the flesh, and then later on in verse 26, I've kind of merged 26 into this, this sermon. We may look at it again in the next one. But as we look at the first works of the flesh and then those at the end in verse 26, it can be overwhelming. If you looked at the forest of your sin, you'd see tree after tree after tree. Each tree representing some sinful tendency, some work of the flesh. But if you try to take the whole forest down in one attempt, you're going to fail. There's just too many trees. Your axe isn't sharp enough. But start with one. Don't just hurry up and chop it at knee level. Make sure it's dead. Take your time. Get down to the root of it. Find the cause and dig it up and put that tree, put that sin to death. But the Holy Spirit is... Our gracious God, walk up and down the forest of your life and ask God to show you your sin. Psalm 139 is so instructive for us in this regard. It teaches us to pray. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Oh, friend, ask God to search your heart and your thoughts. Pray that he would show you these things to you and that by the power of the Spirit, he would help you flee your sin and resist temptation in that area of life. And pick one from the, the first list, but then also pick one from the second list. Pick one from the first list to kill and pick one of the fruit of the Spirit from the second list to, to work on in your heart. Take some time this week to track and trace the root of these struggles and begin chopping them down and then go ahead and meet with someone to talk about it. In fact, before we sing our closing songs today, I want to take a couple minutes of silent reflection now at this point in the service to look over these lists. Maybe if you have your Bible there, just open to it. If you have a bulletin, you'll find the scripture there for Galatians 5. Let's just take a couple moments of silent reflection looking over those two lists and ask God to reveal any sin in those lists. Maybe, maybe a fruit of the Spirit to work on, maybe a deed of the flesh to begin to kill. Then after a couple minutes of reflection, I'll close us in prayer and we'll close in song. As the music team comes forward, let's pray together. 
Father, we pray that we would be a people who see Jesus for who He really is. The loving, sacrificial Savior of the world. Father, we know that if we try harder trying to defeat these deeds of the flesh or grow these fruit of the Spirit in our hearts, we will fail. That We need to see a new affection. We need to see Jesus as greater than all of these things. And we need to attach our hearts to Him. Oh, Father, help us to do so through the indwelling Spirit. We pray that the Spirit would fill us, that the Spirit would, would convict us, that the Spirit would move within us to show us our sin and to give us the strength and the power to defeat it. We pray that we would see You for all Your glory that we would give you all the honor, the praise, and all the glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now it's fitting that we close with these last two songs. First, all I have is Christ. First, we want to start with acknowledging that without Him left on our own, we could do nothing in this battle of sin and death. And then we'll close with a song of how that plays out in our community of faith as believers. Please stand and sing.